in the future? You'll be dreaming. And a kind of sleep. Will you open your eyes? Someone familiar will be there. Welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dorwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this week we're going to be talking about David Lynch's Inland Empire. Mm. But before oh. we do that, Matt, can mm-hmm. you see a mirror? Uh, I'm sure we've got one around here somewhere. There's one there, look. Oh yeah, yeah, I can see one there, okay. yeah, yeah. I've heard that if you look into the mirror and say the words Michael Mason three times, uh-huh. something will happen. Okay, hang on, let me give him a... Right. Does it matter if it's Michael or Mike? Well, you can say either. I, I, I don't know. Okay. I, I, you're the spellmeister. Wait. <laughs> oh, lofty pedestal. Mike Mason. Mike Mason. Mike Mason. Hello. Ah! <laughs> oh, God. Where am I? And, and an evil-smelling cloud of something. <laughs> Can you put some clothes on quickly? Mike? No, hang on a minute. Hang on. You, you, you did pull me out of uh, another situation, but I, I, I'm here now. What, what, the, what the hell are you doing? Well, seeing as you're here. So yes, this week we have Mr. Mike Mason with us. Uh, if you don't know who Mike is, or even if you do know who he is, he's the co-author of Call of Cthulhu Seventh Edition and line editor for the Chaosium's Call of Cthulhu line. Hello, Mike. Hello, evil sorcerers. <laughs> well, seeing as we've got you here, Mike, can you tell us what's going on at Chaosium at the moment? Actually, guys, I've been working on the Two-Headed Serpent, which is um, a Pulp Cthulhu campaign, which you three wrote. So I'm currently working on that at the moment. It's still going to be a little while before it comes out, but um, it's looking great. So thanks, guys. Excellent. Hey, hey. I've put a blog post up on the site already but this at the time of when this will be going out it's still running um the court kickstarter is doing live and well i've been waiting for this for ages <laughs> you have <laughs> yeah well, well you, you managed to pounce on it pretty much as soon as it started didn't you i was i was back a number one sat at my work computer going search search cult refresh search cult <laughs> refresh live back <laughs> and, and you got the limited edition of one the demiurge edition i am god <laughs> well, <laughs> technically not quite <laughs> oh in cult at least anyway next best thing <laughs> yeah so very happy I'm glad that's going to be sat in a glass case alongside my temple edition when that turns up what are you going to do when unknown armies then launches hope that they don't have another limited edition tier that's that expensive oh. <laughs> So, if you're unfamiliar with Cult, we did do an episode on it, which, if we'd actually thought to prepare this bit, I'd had the episode number ready. But 31. Episode 31. Thank you, Matt. I'm glad mm. one of us is competent. <laughs> if you want to know all about Cult, go back and listen to that episode. I mean, the short version is it's basically Gnostic Christianity, the role-playing game, just with more monsters. Complete this, th- this time round, they're doing a Bible edition. So, mm. yeah. This is, this yeah, is I'm great. intrigued as to what the Bible edition will be. Is it just... The core book printed to look like a Bible. Is yeah, that... with, with no artwork. Okay. It's, it's a special edition you can go around and leave in hotel rooms. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so tempted to do that now. <laughs> 
Before we move on to Inland Empire, let's take a look at this week's Lovecraftian word of the week. And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. And this week, the word is delirium. A temporary state of mental confusion. It's mental confusion, that's permanent for me. And fluctuating consciousness resulting from high fever, intoxication, shock or other causes. It's characterised by anxiety, disorientation, hallucinations, delusions and incoherent speech. Again, You're quite familiar with that. So. Yeah, this sounds like most of my 8.30 till 5, Monday to Friday. You know? <laughs> or, or, or the after effects of most of your cocktails. <laughs> Well, ten shots in a martini, Scott. Oh, for yeah. fuck's sake. We can vouch for that. <laughs> or a state of uncontrolled excitement or emotion. Hmm. Now, there may be a thematic reason why I chose this word this for this episode. No shit. <laughs> um, but at the same time, it does seem to be a very Lovecraftian word. Uh, it, again, it's maybe not one of the cliched words one associates with Lovecraft. But on the other hand, a lot of his... Protagonists go through very delirious experiences. Not only does the word delirium turn up you know, some 19 times, but delirious and other variations are, are peppered throughout his work. It seems entirely appropriate for you know, a genre of fiction that is all about kind of shocks to the psyche, uh, about the descent into madness, about not being able to trust your own mind and your own perceptions anymore. So now um, we're going to see how Lovecraft uses delirium in his stories. Oh. From the Call of Cthulhu. March 23rd, the crew of the Emma landed on an unknown island and left six men dead. And on that date, the dreams of sensitive men assumed a heightened vividness and darkened with dread of a giant monster's malign pursuit. Whilst an architect had gone mad and a sculptor had lapsed suddenly into delirium. And from Dreams in the Witch House... Then came the shift as vast, converging planes of a slippery-looking substance loomed above and below him, a shift which ended in a flash of delirium and a blaze of unknown alien light in which yellow, carmine and indigo were madly and inextricably blended. At the mountains of madness. From that point forward, my impressions are scarcely to be relied on. Indeed, I still possess a final... Desperate hope that they may fall form parts of some demoniac dream or illusion born of delirium. And finally, from Herbert West, Reanimator. I was with him on that odious occasion and saw him inject into the still veins the elixir which he thought would, to some extent, restore life's chemical and physical processes. It had ended horribly in a delirium of fear which we gradually came to attribute to our own overwrought nerves. And West had never afterward been able to shake off a maddening sensation of being haunted and hunted. Before we get into the film, though, let's take a look at who exactly is David Lynch. You know, I never knew David Lynch's middle name was Keith. No, that hadn't occurred to me either, but no. apparently it is. It does explain everything. Really? 
Yeah. Okay. Yes. Fair enough. No, no, no. It is the missing key that unlocks all the enigmas of his work. Oh, okay. I'll have to go back and watch Twin Peaks in a whole new light now. Mm. Anyway, he was born in 1946. Again, I didn't realise he was quite that old, really. Yeah, yeah. He's yeah, just 70 turned 70. Yeah. yeah. He's still going. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's going in pretty much every art form you can think of. He is a true Renaissance man. Well, he's busy at the moment making the new series of Twin Peaks, which will Hooray. come out next About year. About bloody time! Looking forward to this. Next year, is it? Yes. Yeah, it's due All for right. release on it's Showtime in the US in 2017. Yeah, they, they pushed it back a year. It was originally going to be this year, but then I think they got more money. There's more episodes coming and yeah, various other it, factors. I think it was originally supposed to be 10, and they've got the money for 16 or something now. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, it's nearly 10 years now since Inland Empire, so this will be mm. his first major thing in 11 years. Yeah. Not counting his music and singing yeah. and... And art and, and so on. And yeah. everything else. Yeah, yes. it's, it's not like he's been sitting around idly. He just hasn't been making feature films. Exactly. He's even been making a lot of short films, music videos, documentaries, stuff like that. As well as his foundation for transcendental meditation. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just looking stunned into the mic at this point. What, what the hell? Yeah, no, no, he's, a, he's been a very enthusiastic support of T, uh, supporter of TM for years. and Yeah. I, yeah. I think he credits a lot of it, uh, his creative process, to TM. And I, I think the sort of intuitive leaps that he makes when doing his work seem to come out of um, certainly the way he taps into his unconscious during meditation. I thought yeah. it was just drugs. Uh, well, there's also that, and I think I remember him saying once, um, I can't remember which film script he was writing, but he was writing it in a diner. And so had a succession of um, donuts, and he felt the sugar rush helped as well. <laughs> was it Big Bob's Diner or something? He used to go to the same diner yes. every day and have the same meal for about 20 years or something. Yeah. Had to do it. Yeah. I thought I was a creature of habit. Wow. <laughs> so that, that's the other secret. It's his middle name and donuts. Mmm, donuts. But anyway, yeah, he's been making films for a very, very long time. Uh, his first feature, A Razorhead, was released in 77. And we, we talked about this and, uh, what was the other film? Lost Highway, back in episode 24. Yes, they uh, appropriately enough, our episode on strange films. But he'd made a few shorts before this, but A Razorhead, which, I, if I remember correctly, took him a number of years to actually complete, was not quite his breakthrough, but it was the one that established him as a feature filmmaker. It seems to be a trend that he's continued on with Inland Empire, because I remember reading somewhere that this took him two and a half years to put together. But his real breakthrough came uh, with The Elephant Man. That, that was the film that got him a lot of attention back in 1980. It sort of set a very brief trajectory for what could have been a very different career for Lynch. Because he followed that up with Making Dune, which was a critical and financial disaster. Personally, I don't hate it, but it's not either a particularly good film or a particularly Lynchian film in any way. No, he, he complains that he didn't get final cut on that, doesn't he? Yeah, um, very much so. But even still, it. taking all what you've said into account, Scott, um, that it still has its moments. Oh, yes. And you can see the hand of Lynch just for a brief second, once once in a while, and... and Quite frankly, they do make the film a good watch, even yeah. though it's not a great film. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I find it enjoyable. It's just not a good film. But anyway, I mean, after the disaster of Dune, he did recover his career quite nicely, but in a much more idiosyncratic personal way, producing films like uh, Blue Velvet, which is one of my favourites, Lost Highway, um, Wild at Heart, uh, and, and of course Mulholland Drive, uh, which has a lot of parallels with the film we're going to be discussing today. Matt, while we're talking about these films, Matt, just as an aside, have you watched The Straight Story? I've seen the end of it. Okay, I'd recommend that one. If you 
don't so much enjoy some of the disjointed nature of some of his films like Lost Highway or whatever then The Straight mm-hmm. Story is definitely worth a watch just to show that he can make a different film. Also, oh, yeah. Lost Highway was my choice when we came round to doing right. the, weird, the weird episode I, I did quite like that um, it took a few viewings to finally get it to click but oh, I quite enjoyed that one cool yeah, I, I do like the straight story, but yeah, it is perhaps it, not the most indicative introduction to Lynch's. No, effort. no, definitely. it's one you need to watch a few of his what might Michael normal films, <laughs> and then watch the straight story because it's quite interesting to watch yeah. uh, the uh, the differences. Or perhaps as a palate cleanser in a Lynch marathon. Yes, <laughs> but anyway, we're all. Lynch fans to some degree. What is it that draws each of you to Lynch? I mean, Paul, you, you particularly, I mean, you're a long-time Lynch fan. What is it that that you, you find compelling about his work? I think this is something that will come out when we talk about Inland Empire, but watching it again last night, it occurred to me that he makes the film and he presents a bizarre and unnerving story with a disjointed narrative, but it's one that that makes me have a sense of wonder about what's going on. And I've seen that in other films, but I think the thing that Lynch does is he leaves space in there for my imagination mm. to fill in. And it's kind of like he's given me, you know, a dot to dot or colour in picture and he's given me room and time to kind of fill it in with really crazy patterns and pictures. And as I watch his films, I find I'm just constructing a narrative in my head. It's a strange kind of experience. I I need to be totally immersed in the film to do that. I don't think his films are ones that you can sit and, uh, you know, and and half be looking at something else or chatting with friends or or whatever. You need to be totally immersed in it. Yeah, but he does make the the viewer complicit in the, the telling of the story. Yeah, you're right. Mike? Just thinking about what you just said, Paul, I think also um, his films very much fall into the word that's called cinema. They they are cinematic. And in fact, I've found the best way to watch them is at the cinema because of the enclosed darkness and the silence. And I think they particularly work well in that way. So I think they're very cinematic in that sense. For all the other things I love, that similar to you, Paul, I think Lynch is a master of the slow build to horror and tension. I always term it dread. He's a master of dread because there are points in his film where it just turns on like a button and, and you feel it and you can feel this mounting dread come upon you. And, it, and it, you know, if, if that's the kind of thing you like, it, it's just a master at it. It just works. And, it, and, and you can repeat, watch the same things. It's unlike a, I guess, a Hollywood horror film where you have jump scares, which when you've seen them the first time, after the first time, they're, they're not really scary at all. But I can still watch um, Mulholland Drive and I can still watch the diner scene in Mulholland Drive and every single time still feel this dread growing inside to me and I'm scared to see what's going to happen next even though I know it and I've seen it so many times. It's just um, wonderful. For me, it's how he structures his stories. Um, not so much in what we'll see in Inland Empire where it, it can be a bit confusing with time jumps and so on, but it's... I think the key example I would use is Twin Peaks, where you have in a couple of the early episodes, you have elements that get thrown in there that on their own mean absolutely nothing, but then skip forward 20-odd episodes or more, and finally things start to make sense. It's that confusion that finally realise there is order in chaos and that it's just a very different way of looking at it, and a kind of non-traditional way of constructing a story. I think it's that difference, it's that originality, and frankly, as you say, weirdness, dread, horror, and mystery that he brings to anything that he does that I really thoroughly enjoy. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I, there's something that George R. R. Martin has talked about with the way he he writes his books, where he's he's divided writers up into, if I remember correctly, what he calls gardeners and builders. So builders are the people who carefully construct stories ahead of time. They block them out. You know, they outline stuff. They plot out what's going to happen to all the characters. And gardeners are the ones who start out with the little seeds of ideas and then just sort of see what they grow into. And he describes himself as, as a gardener. What you're saying there, I mean, you know, Lynch strikes me as being almost the archetype of the gardener, in that I think a lot of the times he's, he's not only planting these seeds and seeing you know, what they grow into, but he doesn't even know what seeds he's planting. He's found these things, he doesn't know quite what they are, he puts them in, he sees them start to shape, and it's just sort of, oh yeah, that was the story I was telling. Yeah, I, I completely agree, and I, I mean, I've read interviews with Lynch where he almost kind of says that, he, he just say that, you know, I'll start making something, and it's not until part way through um, that I actually start to see how it builds. I can, I then see the story that I've been making, maybe unconsciously, but um, I then see it consciously, and then obviously can can kind of pull the film to meet that story. I guess as as he finishes it, so it almost starts off as a gardener and then becomes a structured affair of a builder later on in the latter stage when he realizes where, where it's going. Even then, I, I think his process is probably more intuitive than reasoned. I'd agree with that, Scott, yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, the the thing that draws me to his work is, in a lot of ways, I find him the, the cinematic equivalent of someone like Robert Aikman, in that he makes me feel like I'm dreaming when I'm awake. His stories have got that that dream logic to them, that they make sense on an intuitive, subconscious level even when the, the rational part of your brain is racing around like a frightened animal trying to piece it all together. This, just as an experience, deeply appeals to me, and it makes the films endlessly rewatchable to me as well. A number of people have called Lynch a surrealist, and there are certainly surrealist elements to his work, but at the same time, there is underneath it all meaning. It's not just his subconscious pouring forth whatever it will, uh, that, you know, th- there is that order under there, but, uh, you know, it's an intuitive, dreamlike order. And at the end of it, you know, y- you're left with something that is far more satisfying than if it were completely random, but at the same time is compelling and disturbing and dreamlike enough that it doesn't feel too ordered either. On to our main topic, Inland Empire. Well, we're going to discuss the film itself a bit here. We're going to try something a bit different this time, in that instead of giving a synopsis of it, we're just going to choose a few elements that really appeal to us and talk about them. This well, is mainly because we couldn't give a synopsis. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> or it would take too long. Yeah, spoiler warnings are a bit redundant in this case. <laughs> yeah. We, I mean, we will talk about elements that come up later in the film, and you could see these as spoilers, or you could just see them as perhaps helpful little signposts. What was it? Someone on, on your Facebook thread re- uh, yeah, yesterday, after you talked about watching this film, uh-huh. asked for a synopsis of this, and I think all of us were just stumped. Yeah. Oh, yeah, somebody oh, it, said, what's it about? Yeah, Steve Ellis asked, um, yeah. yeah, what's the film about? I think my response was, I wish I knew. Yeah, so my, 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 my response was, it's a David Lynch film. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's one clear um, statement about what the film is about is what Lynch said, and he's only ever said one thing. It's, yeah. it's a, um, a mystery about a woman in trouble. The more I think about that statement, the more 
clearer it becomes the more I, t- more I watch the film that I think is hit the nail on the head, but it's not obvious. Yeah, and this is a film that rewards repeat viewings. I mean, certainly every time I've seen it, I've got more out of it. Now, I've seen it three times now. I won't say that, you know, this time round, sitting down watching it, that it all clicked into place and it all made perfect sense. But I did feel like, you know, I, I was getting a lot more out of the narrative. Absolutely. Uh, I'd, I completely agree. The more I see this film, the more things start to connect. Now, I make, they make... <laughs> It may not be the connections that Lynch has in terms of the story he's trying to tell, but the story in my head, um, yeah. And I, yeah, I would I, don't be put off the first time you watch it. Yeah, come back to it in a, a year or six months or whatever, and keep coming back. I, I, I suggest leaving it longer than six months because Paul and I saw this at the cinema when this first came out, and um, I bought it when it came out on DVD six months later, and I didn't actually enjoy the second viewing too much because it was too fresh in my mind. I think it needed time to bed in. And certainly, you know, this time round, ten years on, I actually enjoyed it more than I did the first two times. I should point out to listeners that this film is three hours long. Oh, yes. And all shot on a very horrible quality. Yeah, that video. was one of the that was one of the things that Lynch um kind of raved about was the fact that it was all shot on a digital camera back in two thousand and six. Well, two thousand and six it was released. So over those couple of years prior to that, it was shot on digital cameras and nobody was really using digital cameras yeah, at that time. Yeah, it was quite a new thing, at high, you know, high-res digital camera, and yeah. it allowed him a real freedom to you know, move around with the camera that he hadn't really experienced And before. he didn't need a full crew there. But the downside is it does at times look like someone's home movies. Yeah, a, a lot but of it, the time. Yeah, but in some ways that kind of helps the film. Mm. It, there's a certain aesthetic quality that because it looks a bit, odd or not quite right it kind of sits very well with the subject matter Uh, yeah and there are also times where you're you're, you're sort of intruding into the life or lives of the character yeah having that that sort of home movie feel that camcorder feel does actually make it feel more real where was i this isn't the way it was The film kicks off with a woman watching a TV screen and crying. And th- this is a kind of setup for the film, which when you first watch it, you'll, you'll probably just forget that there was ever that bit at the beginning uh, until later. Uh, but what she's watching on TV is this bizarre, what we might call sitcom, comedy, drama, soap on, on the TV screen with rabbits. Well, yeah. people with suit, normal human dress but these massive rabbit heads. Rabbit and they're costumes. sat around mm-hmm. having very inane conversations with each, other, with each other. And then there's this laughter track over it. And, and the laughter track isn't continuous either. It's just you, you'll get a number of very straight, you know, gnomic uh, bits of dialogue. There'll be uh, pauses between them. And then after about three or four, just randomly the laugh track will kick in at one of them. And this made me, when this finishes, I think I think it kind of fades to black and then the film kind of starts in earnest almost, if you like, because we, we cut to the, uh, I think, um, Laura Dern and uh, her, her story. It just kind of put me in mind of what Pixar do with their films, because every Pixar main feature, they do this little funny short at the beginning. And this is like, if Lynch was ever going to do that, this is kind of what he'd do. He'd have this totally bizarre, disturbing 
little mini film at the start, and then you'd get into the main feature. So what you're saying is Inland, Inland Empire is Lynch's Pixar movie. Well, I think that that rabbit bit at the start is his is his uh, Pixar short at the beginning. Well, yeah, I think that should have gone on the poster. <laughs> I'd love to see them team up. <laughs> the horror. That rabbit stuff actually comes out of a, a short film that he made a few years earlier than that. He made this, I, I think it's about a 50-minute film called Rabbits, which is exactly that. And he just reincorporated the characters and elements of it as, as this show within a show uh, mm. within Inland Empire. And those rabbits recur. I mean, it's not just at the beginning, but they turn up again at various points during the narrative. It's probably worth just saying that although there is a laughter track and the 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 dialogue doesn't particularly make sense. It isn't funny in any way. No. It, it, in fact, it's actually quite sinister yes. and unnerving. And um, a, a thought did occur to me that could you actually put the, their lines in a different order? Are they just actually non-linear dialogue? And I was trying to, in my head, but I couldn't do it. I didn't, you know, you'd need to write them all down. But, you know, could you, could you restructure the scene so the actual, the actual conversation <laughs> made sense? And I certainly felt they were communicating with people in the film, the yeah. phone calls and so on. Because I think the first time you watch the film, you kind of like have no idea what what these rabbit scenes are about, what what have any relation to the rest of the film. But again, repeat viewing, you can start to see connections form. Because they they appear in a couple of instances. I think after the first one, the kind of the husband rabbit, if there's such a, a title for it, uh, walks out the door appears in another room, fades out, another scene happens, fades back in, goes back into his house. And it's the little interlinks that happen all the way through then. Yeah, well, there's this particularly bizarre scene where it's almost like the, the, the other rabbits are performing a ritual to summon him. Yes. Which is, it, I mean, which is really quite unnerving. The scene you mentioned, Matt, I mean, one interpretation could be that one of the, the, the humans in that scene that follows mm -hmm. is the rabbit because he's materialized in our world mm -hmm. and he plays that scene and then because at the end of the scene he then disappears back doesn't he i think yeah. yeah he reappears and goes back in his room yeah but it could mean something completely different <laughs> i was quite surprised to find uh, a fairly big star was the voice of one of the rabbits oh yeah yeah naomi watts is uh, mm. the voice of one of them yeah and she was in the original film as well yeah. My scene that I chose um, is fairly early in the film as well, and it's really the first um, full scene with uh, Laura Dern, who effectively takes, I guess, the main role in the film. You say main role like it's one character. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I'm trying to be vague as well. Uh, but um, she um, she's in her California, well Hollywood home, uh, very... Um, um, glossy and upmarket and uh, obviously moneyed um, and um, she has a butler and uh, uh, the doorbell rings and uh, this uh, she has an old woman visitor uh, who she's never met before who um, has come to say that she's recently moved to the area um, and um, and is obviously invited in and sits down to have a, a cup of tea um, and um, what you have next is this gr great scene of uh, this woman effectively, she dominates the conversation um, and um, 
she seems to foretell the future because she seems to have these pretense of um, things that are going to happen. And she she mentions that uh, I, I see you're going to be in a new film and Laura Dern's character is saying, well, no, well I'm, I'm trying for a new film, but it's no guarantee I'm going to get it. And But the woman is saying, no, I think you will get the film. You will be in the film. She seems to know the future. Uh, at one, there's a fantastic point where she's saying, is, is, the, is the film about marriage? Well, there's a, yeah, there's a little bit of something about that in there. And it, I think there's a murder in the film too. Oh, no, no, no there's, no, there's no murder in the film. And the woman just turns around and says, brutal fucking murder. And um, the voice, the, the mannerisms and the, the accent of a language, it, it, it's all, it, it all's not quite right. Um, and while this is all going on, the, the, the close camera angle of the high digital mm. lens is right. It's extreme close-ups. It's quite unsettling. And obviously, Laura Dern's character is quite unsettled by it. I think that's what I found particularly unsettling is that Laura Dern is, is sat talking to this old woman. And it's quite clear at the, at the first that Laura wants to be accommodating host. But then this old woman starts saying these really bizarre and inappropriate and disturbing things. And... You can see the host getting quite uncomfortable and eventually she says, I don't like this kind of talk. I'd like you to leave now. Yeah. But and the she woman carries just on. carries on yeah. regardless. Yeah, she's got something to say and she will say it. But there's know. these uncomfortable pauses and Laura Dern's looking at her like, what the hell are she you She doesn't even know talking? what to say, What does do she? I do yeah. here? Yeah. I, and we know the butler has said, I'll be just, uh, I'll be close at hand, madam. So yes. we kind of know that he's just around the corner, but but she's not calling on him. There's this, another kind of tension there. Well, also she describes the old lady describes where she lives. It's just because she's asked, "Oh, where, which which house that you live in?" And she says, "Oh, I live down the street. You know, off off the street. You can't see it from the street." And it's like, "What? Where? Where do you live? Just you're you come <laughs> around as a neighbour. You would say I live at number fifty-seven or something. Well, it's, it's, you wouldn't well, just be enigmatic yeah. about it and not actually say where you live." Well, it's worse than that, though, because when Laura Dern's character says to her, you know, oh, I think I know the one, you know, it's the one with the, the brick face and it's on, it's, you know, no, you wouldn't know which one it was. And it's, okay. Yeah, you can't see it from the road. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, get out of my house now, you crazy old lady. From the cabin in the woods. Yeah. <laughs> what, what I also find interesting is, it, because, again, it's so early in the film, Lynch almost seems to introduce the film by this conversation. Mm. Yeah. Because the, the woman talks about the displacement of time. And in fact, there's a, there's, a, there's a few lines about, you know, if today was tomorrow, you would be sat over there. And in fact, the next scene is, is tomorrow and Laura Dern's character is sat in the chair that the old woman's predicting she will sit in. And there is this talk about the disjointed nature of time. This was one thing I thought when I watched it um, the first time round, that when she points to the chair and says that, right, tomorrow you're going to be there, and it's like, follow my hand and watch... And then with the skip right to the very end of the film where she sat back where she was, mm, yes. it makes me think, has that whole section from her pointing to that chair right to the very end of the film being um, almost a vision that she's had? Or is it something that um, she has told her about that maybe this is part of her prophecy that she's giving? And that now she sat there with almost this contented look on her face saying, now I understand. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think the other key line to watch out for in this scene is the woman describes uh, an unpaid debt that's still to be collected. Mm. And I think that has a significant meaning for the film. Yeah. And the, the other one from the, um, that I picked up on was um, the fairy tales that she says. Mm. Um, particularly, a lady comes back from the marketplace and finds a door that leads to a palace. That's quite a turning point for the film when you then see that happen later. And the fact yeah. the boy goes through a door and evil is born. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
in a lot of ways, I mean, the portents that she's speaking at this stage are the character almost working it as the author's voice and talking in very vague terms and laying out not not so much the plot of the film, but certainly at times, but the themes of the film, just explaining in, in very cryptic terms what you're about to see. Is, is there a murder in your film? Now, I think you are wrong about that. No. Brutal fucking murder. Cutting forward a short while, Nikki, the actress, learns that she is playing Sue in the feature film that she's auditioned for. The key actors have got together with the director and kind of the director's lackey, I guess, is what, yeah, what role does assistant he play? Or, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, it's never quite spelt out, but he, he does seem to be an assistant. Played, played wonderfully by Harry Dean Stanton. Yes. <laughs> uh, they get together in a soundstage and they're performing the kind of one of the first run-throughs of a particular scene. And I think it's... Uh, I can't remember the character's name now. Is it Billy is the character yeah. in the film, but not the actor's name? Yeah, Devon's the actor's name. That's it, yeah. yeah. They are Devon playing Billy and Nicky playing Sue. Um, they're reading from the script. It is just a read-through, but they start to get a bit more involved. They put the script almost down on the laps and they start looking at each other, uh, reciting the lines rather than just reading them. Nikki starts crying. Of course, it starts getting fairly intense and then, bam, the Harry Dean Stanton character say, what's that? And of course, everything, like everyone else immediately thinks, it's no, she's crying, shut up, she's acting. That's what she's here to do. I said, no, I saw someone moving in the background. And of course, turn around and again, that little spark of something ominous happening just again off screen that you have Devin he goes around the soundstage looking for what um, looking for what's happened thinking there's maybe an intruder on the set and he comes back he hasn't found anything evidently whoever it was has run off or they've they've hidden whatever he, he comes back at that point the director says right time for me to fess up and give you a plot point this film is a remake of a film that wasn't ever finished but is a cursed film um German, maybe Polish. It's that's a arguable arguable point called forty seven. Yeah, and the the two main uh, the, the two main leads in it uh, were both murdered. Yes, hence what stopped production. Yeah, brutally murdered. <laughs> brutally fucking murdered. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's, that's I think for me one of the points where the film starts to it builds that ominous tension. Besides the weird portent at the start it's it starts to take shape and start to take a bit more form in that in that scene you have that almost a double whammy don't you because you have the you have the stranger in the background who you don't know who's there and why they're there and they're not are they really there and then as you say it's swiftly followed by this the tone is kept because the director then says i, I need you to sort of sit down and listen to me because i have to tell you something and that's when he mm. tells about the cursed nature of the film mm -hmm. so you do have this kind of double Dread whammy, as it were. Yeah. <laughs> You'll be dreaming. And a kind of sleep. But yeah, I mean, you mentioned the character played by Harry Dean Stanton, Freddie. Oh, and <laughs> yeah, it, he is one of my favourite parts about the film. I mean, he gets very little screen time, he's almost a throwaway character. But th there's a scene that follows on, I think, almost immediately after that. Uh, where Freddie is sitting down there with uh, Billy and uh, with with Nicky, they're talking, you know, in general terms. I think he's, 
Doesn't he mention something about how he used to sort of carry his weight in the business, but he doesn't really anymore? And yeah, yeah, it seems, yeah, it it was, seems he, like a, a glory days kind of statement, doesn't yeah. it? I, yeah, he's asked about how he enjoys the film. Um, did you enjoy it? And then it sparks off on him going off on almost like a sad rant, really. And it leads on to him saying, you know, can I borrow a couple of bucks? I have this damn landlord. And there's just something about that line. <laughs> yeah, just the sadness that's packed into it, the desperation. Then Billy sort of you know, reaches into his wallet and pulls out a bit of money and, and, and passes it over. And Freddie just turns around and looks expectantly at Nicky, still with his hand out. And, All right, OK. And then, you know, later on in the film, at least once, you just see in the background him doing the same with the crew. Yeah, and this is obviously this whole routine that he's just built up. And it's beautiful. It's just so odd, really, I found yeah. it. It's so strange that he would be begging from the people that he's working with like that. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to think that he doesn't need the money, that this is just some kind of weird power play or a game that he plays with people to amuse himself. I mean, maybe he does, maybe it's you know, all, all exactly as it seems. But for a film that's all about playing with identity and people not being what they seem, it just seems... You know, a very odd layer to put on things. Also, it seems more like some of the things in Mulholland Drive where there seem to be quite a few vignettes in there that you could kind of pull out and it doesn't really impact on the overall thing. Yeah. That felt like one in, in Inland Empire to me, that it didn't really impact on the on the Inland Empire story, but it was a, it was a nice little um, bit of icing on the cake, really. If yeah. you sort of take all those kind of scenes together, as you say, Paul, they, 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 there's a, you can kind of almost wonder whether these are little kind of asides um, about uh, Lynch's view of the Hollywood system or the, the nature of filmmaking or what it You can imagine been. that was somebody he saw or somebody he knew that did that. if it's a true story or yeah, in a way, yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there is just something so precise about this line, you know, I have this damn landlord. I can just imagine Lynch having heard someone use that line and writing it down, yeah, that's, mm. that's going in a film. <laughs> and I think the reason it works so well is because it is Harry Dean Stanton delivering it. It's yeah. just a fantastic performance. Well, with that hangdog expression. Yes. Yeah. Does he have any other? <laughs> <laughs> Matt, you mentioned the scene where Devon goes to look at the soundstage at the back to look for this person that's uh, apparently intruded. Later on in the film, we have Laura Dern, the actress, who's uh, looking around the, the, the back of the, the studios and um, she's been to buy some fruit in her, in her car and she's just parked up there. And there's this door with some chalk writing on it and um, this kind of catches her curiosity because we've heard reference to this before. And she goes in through the door and she's at the back of one of these massive buildings in Hollywood where they record the films. And she's at the back of a stage set and she starts looking around. And there's this grimy window and she peers through it and we kind of recognise this window, we've seen it before. And peering through it, looking up through the building, she can see the scene that we saw earlier of the director and the her and Devon and uh, Harry Dean Stanton all sat there talking. And, of course, she is the intruder. Mm. And then she sees Devon coming her way. And that's all really weird. But what I think Lynch is the master of is he takes you to that place where you're thinking, oh, this is pretty strange, but, you know, it's kind of like time travel contradictions and things like that, which <laughs> kind of, you know, they're kind of fun. But then as she's looking, she looks... There's Devon, the male actor, coming towards her, and there's her sat talking to the director. She can see her own self. And then the camera 
just cuts back to her and then it cuts back to them and she's no longer there. Hmm. And it's like, well, hold on. What? I thought I was thinking this is weird. Now it's like Lynch has just pulled the chair out from underneath me because <laughs> now I'm just flailing. I, I just don't know. I didn't expect that. I'm just totally... Con- well, not, I don't know. It's not really totally confused, but it's totally... Um, alarmed? Alarmed, unbalanced, disturbed, unsure of what to make of it. Because I think because I was able to sort of feel like I was getting a grip on it. Yeah, and that writing that's on the door, it's Axon N. Yeah. Now, Axon N is referred to at the start of the film. Um, when you've got that gramophone playing at the very, very beginning, the first thing you see in the film, there's a voiceover saying, you know, Axon N is the longest-running drama on radio or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they, it, it crops up again, you know, a few times in the film. It got me interested enough that I actually Googled it afterwards. And apparently Axon N was going to be the name of a project that Lynch uh, was going to do in 2002. It was a series of short films, uh, a series that he was going to put on his website. I mean, back in the days before people really did that kind of thing. And it's interesting, if you look on David Lynch's website now, uh, there is still an entry on there that says, Axon N is a nine-episode mystery drama series. It will be online at davidlynch.com starting in the fall of 2002. <laughs> and it still might be. <laughs> I, that's just perfect for a film that's all about fucking around with time. <laughs> Yeah, the the other scene um, I noted was um, I'm not sure how to term it, but it's the uh, it's the confrontation with the Phantom, which comes towards the end of the movie, uh, and you have Laura Dern's character finds her way, and she's in this kind of back corridor, or maybe, maybe it's a hotel or some kind sort of a maze of, of corridors. Like a maze of corridors. Yeah, yeah. It's a bit hard to define exactly where it is. Well, um, isn't it revealed or? Uh, it certainly turns out to be the corridors leading to the room where the woman watching the TV yes. uh, in the opening scene is. And yes. the rabbits. And yeah. yeah. So it, it yeah. does link in. Um, uh, she's always been shown where to, get a, where to get a pistol. And so she has a pistol in hand at this point. And there's a, uh, a male figure walking down the corridor towards her. And, it, and it's clear this figure is bad. It's clear it's a threatening figure. And this figure is generally termed the phantom. Um, and is mentioned a few times throughout the film. And it's a scene where she shoots the phantom. And what you have is this, rather the, the, the phantom, you know, collapsing in with bullets, shotting them, is still standing there, but the face suddenly distorts. It kind of grows bulbous. And suddenly Laura Dern's character is, is looking back at herself. You have this kind of distorted, clown-like bulbous her face shown back at her in in the face of the phantom and and it happens very quickly and it is almost a jump scare oh god yeah and, and it is absolutely terrifying it, 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 i remember the first time i saw it it i just went cold when i saw that face and and having watched it again recently, it happened again. <laughs> yeah. It really is quite an unnerving and disturbing. I was quite visual. worried about that coming up. Yeah. Oh, wait, wait, when you and I saw that at the cinema, Paul, I think we both jumped at that stage. I would think so. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm, I felt initially I fell asleep while watching the film twice. Of course you um, did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, one one of the moments where I woke up was kind of a preceding <laughs> scene to this. <laughs> And suddenly everyone falls apart around me. <laughs> <laughs> you, 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 you never fail to, 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 to deliver, Matt. 
<laughs> I'm a creature of habit. What can I say? You should write reviews for the newspaper. <laughs> One of the bits where I woke up. <laughs> Instead of giving a star rating, you can talk about what percentage of the film you managed to get through without falling asleep. Well, the first time it was 15 minutes. Um, then I fell asleep at the, um, the, the half hour mark. <laughs> I think again at one and a half hours, and I woke up 20 minutes later. Um, it was particularly where there's a scene where um, Laura... Again, it's unsure what character's been portrayed here, but Laura Dern, as the actress, runs up from this dark background. I think it's outside. Starts running into oh, the light. outside, yeah. yeah. Starts running towards the camera. It's silent up until the point where she's right face up in the camera with this huge, um, really almost painful grin on her face and it's then got bah! and it's that sound of the uh, the music that woke me up <laughs> and then to look on the screen and go oh shit <laughs> um, but I think it's that same kind of weird extended grin that you see on that kind of morphed yes. face yeah yeah. Mm. Uh, yeah there's a kind of almost as I said I think I've said it, it's, it's almost a clown like because it's quite pale and the lips are red and they're big and uh, and there's a clown like kind of mask to it and, and the, in fact there is an image of a clown that's repeated a few times in the film. That mm. got me thinking, and I read somewhere there was a reference to clowns in Catching the Big Fish, which is one of Lynch's books. Mm. And I think, I got this quote off the internet, so I think it's in the book, but I'm not sure. But Lynch says about clowns, I called that depression and anger the suffocating rubber clown suit of negativity. <laughs> that's um, in the book, yeah. That is yeah. in the book, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And I think... I, <laughs> And I just thought I had to say that, really, because it's a great line. <laughs> he says quite a bit about Inland, Inland Empire in the book, actually. Yes. Uh, yeah. In the future? Now, going back a scene, keeping with the non-linear time frame here, <laughs> Nikki, the actress, at least I think it's Nikki, the actress, is leaving the film set in a bizarre, almost like zombified state. Um, she's walking away almost as if she's in a trance, but driven to do something. Maybe because we've been given the little hints that this phantom is a kind of hypnotist killer that's hypnotising people to assassinate other people and so on and so forth. We have a scene which immediately reminds me of In the Mouth of Madness, that she walks into a cinema and she sees the film that she's been starring in on the screen. So it's a film within the film, and it suddenly, I, I don't know, it just made my head pop slightly, thinking, oh, what, what am I watching exactly now? I've lost track. But then it gets weirder, <laughs> because it's not just the film that, yeah, or the bits of the film that she's been shooting and so on, but she's starting to see herself in the theatre in real time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's then leaving um, hints of what she has to do next, like, for instance, where she can pick up the gun that Mike said. Sorry, I just thought of a connection I hadn't realised before. Obviously, we've been talking about rabbits, and one of the things she gets told is if she wants to is it see reality or see things how they really are, she needs to um, poke a, um, a cigarette hole through a piece of silk and look through the hole. Mm. And it's just, just obviously occurred to me, of course, she's looking through the rabbit hole, isn't she? Oh, yes. Of course. Yeah. Foolish boy. <laughs> Unless, of course, she's not. Of course. <laughs> or it could be that it's the bullet hole she pierces through the, um, kind of the mask of the phantom. Could be both. Yeah. But yeah, that, that just the image of the character in the film watching themselves on the screen in the film that they've made within the film was almost like just a degree of recursion. It was almost like when you stack two mirrors next to each other and watching that view off to infinity. I, I love the moment. Someone familiar will be there. 
Yeah, and the final scene that I wanted to talk about was one that actually directly precedes that, which is, as you mentioned, there's this implication that the Phantom has hypnotised people uh, to do things. And there's an earlier scene where the wife of the character Billy is in a police station talking about how she's been forced by someone or hypnotised by someone to stab a person with a screwdriver. But then she reveals that she's actually the one who's been stabbed and has still got the screwdriver in her, which is... To an extremely disinterested police officer. Yeah, yes. It doesn't seem to care that he's talking to a woman who has got this bloody great screwdriver stuck in her midriff. It's almost like this is the fifth one I've seen today, love. Get on with it. <laughs> well, it's great. It's just to build up because she's, you know, you've got this close up on her face and, and it kind of pulls away. And you can see her body and it all looks normal. And she's telling him, yeah, you know, I've been hypnotized and, and police officers going, yeah, well, yeah, well, who, you know, what, who are you supposed to murder? When are you supposed to murder? And then it just sort of slowly pulls back and she just lifts her T-shirt a little bit and she's got this bandage and you still don't really know. It's just... But I think I've stabbed myself. She's got this massive screwdriver. Yeah. She's been sat there for however long. And oh, by the way, it's, it's awful. But anyway, you know, the same character turns up uh, on this street scene where um, not Nikki, but Sue, the character probably, uh, has been hanging out on the street with a bunch of women who are probably prostitutes. The wife, you know, the hypnotised wife, runs up and stabs Sue with the screwdriver. Uh, the women scatter. Sue staggers off down the street. Uh, down the Hollywood off, Walk of Fame. Yeah. 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 And then collapses on the ground on a bit of cardboard between a number of homeless people uh, who are just sitting there on the pavement talking. They briefly acknowledge the fact that this has happened and then just carry on with their conversation over her. This this kind of very, very strange conversation about getting to different parts of Los Angeles by bus, about uh, a friend who's got a hole in her vaginal wall. Uh, and a another, monkey. Yeah, uh, is it the same one who's got the pet monkey yeah. that throws yeah, shit at yeah, the screen? Screaming monkey. She's in there yeah. at the end, isn't she? Yeah, yes. that's right. Yeah, yeah. And, and wears the long blonde wig that allows her to you know, go around posh places without anyone noticing. And Same girl who's only got one leg. Uh, yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's right. During all this time, I mean, every now and then you see Sue just lying there, bleeding out. And at one point, one of the, the homeless women just sort of leans over and, and sort of says, yeah, oh, d- d- don't worry, you're only dying. <laughs> and eventually they, they, they engage a bit more with her and the same woman just sort of says, yeah, I'll show you the light now and just lights up a lighter uh, to as, sort of help her pass dies, over. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and then makes some comment about no more Blue Tomorrow. And of course, Blue Tomorrow is the name of the script. You see, you know, Nikki just die there, or rather Sue just die there on the pavement. And then suddenly, you know, the camera pulls back and you see the camera filming them. And, you know, this is the last scene of the film the being shot. Yeah, and and all, the act, all the actors get up, but Nikki's still lying there, you know, still unable to let go of the role in which she's just died. And, it, dear God, is that a disturbing scene. Me, I... I can't seem to remember if it's today, two days from now, or yesterday. <laughs> I suppose if it was 9.45, I think it was after midnight. Lynch is notorious for not really saying much about his work. Uh, as Mike said earlier, when asked about the film, he said it's about all men in trouble. And he doesn't really go into much more depth than that. There was uh, an interesting extra on the second DVD, which I couldn't get to play, but I did find uh, online, uh, of him actually directing 
which was really interesting because it was unlike any shot of David Lynch I'd seen before. He's usually, you know, his hair's all quaffered perfectly and he's, he's in his suit and he's kind of talking, he's kind of acting the David Lynch role. Yeah, but that's... this was him as director with a woolly hat and glasses and smoking and shouting and swearing at people and calling them morons and stuff like this. And he's kind of thinking, oh, yeah, well, I, I'm sure he is just like a normal guy most of the time. <laughs> yeah, it would appear that when he made this film, it was... Well, I think when we say there wasn't a script and he'd write a daily script and hand it to the actors and they'd do it and then he'd kind of improvise and he'd just get, you know, uh, little seeds of ideas and put them in. It kind of sounds very... Well, perhaps it is haphazard, but I think in most people's hands it would be a directionless mess. Uh, but he manages to, like you said, as a gardener sort of style of, of working, to take these disparate ideas and threads and kind of weave them together they use the word resonate you know things kind of resonate together mm. that that's kind of how it seemed to be developed i i'm just going back to you know the implication of what was something you said a moment ago which is that david lynch is a character played by david lynch <laughs> yeah I, <laughs> I, and and that seems absolutely perfect for this film and i wrote I had my little notebook with me as I watched the film again for this, and I've just noticed I wrote down, it's not meant to be explained, it's just meant to be experienced. And I, <laughs> I'm not sure that's actually true, but yeah. that's what did hit me at the time. I don't know that I'd necessarily agree with that. I think this is a film that can be pieced together like a jigsaw puzzle. I, I completely agree. I, I, was, I, I think that's a misleading statement, actually, but it made me yeah. laugh. Yeah. <laughs> Because, I mean, this is a film about, uh, well, it's a film about a great many things, but one of the themes in it is the unreliability of memory and time. The fact that a lot of things happen out of order um, and a lot of things are presaged or, you know, implied ahead of time. A lot of portents to them. Yeah. Because of this... I, I wonder whether, you know, there could actually be, like you were saying with the uh, the dialogue from the rabbits earlier, whether you could actually recut this into a more linear narrative that would actually make more rational sense on the I first I was wondering viewing. the same thing, yeah, yeah. Well, when you're saying about portents, there is um, the one last scene, in fact, the last scene, where everything kind of comes together. In fact, it's almost uh, David Lynch sing and dance along with references to not just... Inland Empire and the stuff that you've seen previously, but a whole lot of his other films are in yeah, there as well. Yeah, uh, one of the lead actresses from Mulholland, Mulholland Drive is just sat in the chair and there's a smile and a nod. It's almost, it's almost as if David Lynch knew this was going to be his last feature film, and it's kind of like this kind of greatest hits wonderful moment, greatest yeah. hits, and it's all done to this song and dance routine and it's yeah. it's wonderful yeah Nina it, Simone song, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's Cinema. almost like that is after the film though, because that is it fades to black. And then the credits roll and we have that scene. Yeah, and you see elements in it like the monkey and the one-legged woman with a wig and stuff like that. And and also this lumberjack who just happens to be soaring a log Which, in the middle of all this. <laughs> what you need at the at the back of a song and dance routine is 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 someone soaring a log. Wasn't Lynch's father a carpenter? I, I think so. I'm pretty uh, sure think he's so. into carpentry. I, I was just thinking it was a throwback to Twin Peaks with the logs being cut in the opening yeah. credits. yeah. I mean, it's interesting, in fact, because you say it doesn't necessarily seem part of the film, although there are links to the film in this final kind of credit sequence. But the effect on me is that you've gone through this quite sometimes difficult three-hour film, um, and 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 it 
fades to black and then this scene comes up that you can't kind of help but smile <laughs> and feel some uplift from. And it's yeah. almost as if, you know, there's a... Uh, it's cathartic. Yeah, there's yeah. cathartic in it. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, because there's very little humour in the film, I would say. There's not much humour in a razor head, granted, but there is humour in... <laughs> well, there's a radiator scene. That's, that's the <laughs> yeah, gaggle okay. of laughs. That's kind of manic, uncomfortable laughter of... <laughs> Just, uh, is there any other kind? When you fail yeah. your sanity that, that, role, Yeah, really. yeah it's, it's, it's the laughter that you get after you see into the true meaning of the universe. So there's, definitely <laughs> la there's definitely comedy in Mulholland Drive, I would say. Yeah, and there certainly, there certainly is in Twin Peaks. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. There was a fish in the percolator. <laughs> but uh, you talk about the musical number there as well. I mean, music is very important all the way through this. Oh. The ambient score, for a start is one that, you know, you, you know, Mike, you were talking about the fact that this film invokes dread, or Lynch's work in general invokes dread. But the use of the ambient music in this, dear God, I don't think I've ever heard a soundtrack that has put me on edge quite as much as the soundtrack of Inland Empire. It's also the, one of the f a few times that he hasn't worked with Angelo Badalamenti, or how you pronounce his surname, yeah. um, yeah. as his kind of musical collaborator. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this. I mean, putting this soundtrack on at the back of one of your, you know, Cthulhu games wouldn't you? Wouldn't go far wrong, really, would you? Really? <laughs> yeah. Well, until the locomotion kicks in. Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> the bit when you walk into the gin joint or something, you know. But. <laughs> this is your safe zone. Yeah. Yeah. So there's another musical number just in the middle of the whole film where uh, this bunch of women suddenly start dancing to the locomotion, and yeah, it and is then vanish. Good, yep. Yeah. It is. It is a good what the fuck moment in a film full of what the fuck moments. <laughs> Matt. What's the meaning of Inland Empire? <laughs> I looked this up um, myself on Wikipedia a while back when I heard I heard about the film for the first time and wondered, what is it? Is it a term that's direct from the film? And no, it, it, it's a place. It's essentially, it's a district of Los Angeles. It well, goes, I think just outside Los Angeles, around San Bernardino. Or? I don't know LA that well. No. I've been to one part of it, apart from the airport, and that's it. <laughs> and I know this was nowhere near it. It's a suburb of that, or an area in that general vicinity. A bit like Mulholland Drive is a real drive that goes up into the hills surrounding LA. This, again, is the a place name of that general area. But whether it's the film takes place there, it seems a rather weird decision to make the film called Inland Empire if it's set mostly on Hollywood. Yeah, it seems a lot of it is on Hollywood Boulevard, isn't it? Mm. Mm. I'd read that... I'm not sure if it was Laura Dern, but David Lynch was talking to somebody who had meant who who mentioned the term inland empire in the conversation. What I'd read is Lynch turned around and said, "Oh, I love the word inland, and I love the word empire. I'm going to call my next film Inland Empire." So I'm not <laughs> sure if it has any meaning whatsoever. But well, in fact, it's just outside the Hollywood arena. Maybe maybe actually a commentary on the film itself, mm. very much outside of the normal Hollywood. Also, Inland Empire sort of suggests of a, an inward journey into the self as well. Absolutely, yeah. which you may be hitting the nail on the head there, Mr Fricker. <laughs> <laughs> and it also sounds really cool. We should also note that if you go onto YouTube and just put David Lynch, cow, <laughs> and, uh, and see what you Perfect. get. Perfect. Oh. In the Oscars, there's this thing called For Your Consideration where uh, directors put forward their films to the, to the Oscar board. And he wanted Laura Dern considered for an Oscar. And his way of doing this, rather than spending loads and loads of money on uh, promotion and, and all this rubbish that they usually do, he sat on the corner of Hollywood Boulevard with a cow <laughs> and a big sign reading, Without cheese, there would be no Inland Empire. And a kind of sleep. 
and now what we can steal for gaming from Inland Empire. I think it's dangerous territory to step into, I would say, for a start. You have to be very confident, I think, about using some of the techniques here because that can easily um, most, not derail a game but make it fall apart. Most quick. players at the end of the game are going to turn to the keeper and say, so what was going on with that thing? And if you just go, I don't know, <laughs> then, you know, you're in for trouble, really. Uh, well, I don't know. I, I have run at least one horror scenario conventions where I didn't have a reason for what was happening and I actually told the players that up front. I said, you know, look, um, don't bother investigating this because, you know, th there is nothing to find out here. It's just there for atmosphere. But, you know, you're dealing with the fallout of it instead. And that actually went really well. Hmm. Yeah, it was one of the, the best convention games I've ever been involved in. Okay. I don't know what to say to that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's our ship blowing out the water. <laughs> so is there, are there are there are there things you can that you can draw as inspiration, not necessarily trying to recreate a Lynch film on a gaming table, but are there things that Lynch has done in the film or aspects or scenes or devices that you think could be used in in gaming? Yeah. I mean, a lot of the stuff that he uses, a lot of the techniques he uses to build dread in this film, I think are things that we can use ourselves. I mean, I mentioned the music and, and certainly, you know, sinister background music can help set an atmosphere. But, I mean, that's not always practical, so that's a minor consideration. But the way that the characters speak, you know, the, the, the fact that they very rarely speak in you know, normal direct dialogue, that they make pronouncements, uh, that they speak in oblique ways, that what they're saying makes superficial sense, but then doesn't, when you start thinking about it, and then when you think about it a bit more, it makes a different kind of sense. And that's I'm, sometimes just saying quite mundane statements in a weird, kind of slightly enigmatic way. Yeah. Which, you know, when it's done with, uh, by the Keeper for NPCs... I think that's very can be very quite effective. Yeah, especially if you combine it with that kind of stilted delivery and the awkward pauses and you know invasion of personal space and stuff like that. I mean, you know, you, you can make people feel very very uncomfortable just through little social cues like. Because I guess as a as a viewer watching Inland Empire, I'm a little bit like an investigator in a game. I'm receiving the information and I'm trying to put the bits together and solve the mystery almost in my head. And, you know, when I'm playing a game, that's kind of what I'm doing as well. I'm trying to piece the, the correlate the pieces together and figure out what's going on. Um, and if the NPCs are kind of unreliable and strange and disturbing, then, yeah, that adds to that. Particularly when I'm running horror games, I try to avoid having helpful NPCs in there. Every NPC that I portray, you know, I try to portray as being broken or dysfunctional or, or off in some way, just to build up that sense of wrongness. And, and it's very effective. I was going to say, building on what you two have just said, uh, in Inland Empire, there's a line that's repeated by different characters in the, in the film, and it's the line that goes something along the lines of, uh, tell me if you've known me before. Yeah. Mm. And... Um, it's just a great line, and it's a great device um, in terms of having very different characters say a, the same single line to the investigators at different points during the scenario. It can be quite one. It could be a clue or lead to a clue, but equally, it can be quite unnerving. And like, what what's going on? This is this is bigger than we thought it was, mm -hmm. and um, so I think it's not a nice device for that. It's a device I remember from Lost Highway that I particularly like is that um, when the kind of mystery man figure says, we've met before, haven't we? 
It's half portent, but again, it's a it's a motif that you get in multiple places throughout um, throughout a film or an adventure. And I've heard you use that in scenarios, Matt. We're talking to an NPC, and then they'll say something. Says they're not quite who they are. Um, it's kind of like you know we've met before, haven't we? And you're like, no, I've you know we've we've just come to this place or whatever. It's something that that says they know a lot more. It's not this that they're concealing something. It's making clear that there's a lot more going on than as a player I thought there was. Yeah, I, I've um, done I've done yeah. that with fear. One, I think the, the example in my head that sticks that I've used recently is in Fear itself, where one of the characters walks away from the scene, um, having dropped a couple of very obscure hints, but then just whistles away to the tune of "Whiter Shade of Pale." And one of the one of the pre-gen characters at the table, that's a very significant part of his background. And that, that I've seen it a couple of points when the players looked at me, looked down at their sheet, looked back up, and gone, "Oh crap." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I've I've done something vaguely similar in a Pop Cthulhu uh, scenario that I've run at a number of conventions. Yeah, again, it's just the the idea of the same line of dialogue coming from different NPCs. The first time it happens, you know, no one thinks too much of it, and then when they speak to about three or four other NPCs, and just in the middle of the conversation, they just throw in the same slightly odd line. It's just this this growing sense of something is really badly wrong here, and we don't know what it is. Shit. <laughs> I was going to also mention about um, players, the very nature of a game like Call of Cthulhu, which it, it, it tends, if you're playing it, you know, standardly where there's an investigation and there's clues to be found, players like order. Players like to gather the clues and put them into some sense and order. I'd written down a note about the horror of confusion. Yeah. Ways to not actually necessarily go out of your way to confuse or distract the players and, and you know, but I think if you have a plan and there's an intention behind it and there's a reason behind it, then um, I think that kind of you know confusion in 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 what you present to the players is reliable. Because and I think that also dovetails into another point, which is the keeper as an unreliable narrator in the game. I think both of those kind of build that confusion, which confusion breeds horror. There's a, a number of different times where presented strange situations to players and I've seen them sitting there trying to learn what the rules of them are trying to take away the mystery and trying to find some way of defanging uh, this this unknown and making it safe. One of the more effective techniques I've found is you know, when I notice that happening just whatever rules I may have set up for myself, they're starting to get close to them break them, change the rules, contradict myself, never let them feel safe. I think not clarifying things to, to players as well. So when they double-check things, when they try to put together their plan and present it to you, don't nod and confirm it. Don't don't reiterate things. Only kind of give them the same information again. Because mm. there is a temptation, I think, to kind of confirm that the players are on the correct route or, you know, they put things together correctly. I think you've got to, got to fight against that urge. Yeah. How so, about non-linear scenarios? <laughs> with flashbacks and so on, perhaps. But they They're are a load necessarily... of nonsense, aren't they? They are a load of nonsense. What are you talking about, Mason? It's a, it's a tricky thing to do because once you start jumping around in time or doing flashbacks, unless you've got a, a game mechanic that kind of supports that, yeah. you know, I do a flashback, I shoot you, mm. oh, hold on, now when we go forward, back, oh, bugger, my game's ruined. Yeah, I, there's a very different set of tools you can use when you're constructing a story than when you're constructing a role-playing game. 
Because in a story, you've got absolute control over everything that happens. In an RPG, it's collaborative. So you can never actually determine what someone else is going to do. Or at least, you know, not, not, not unless you're a really good GM and just, you know, keep the players in line, you know, start to end. <laughs> That's how you do it, isn't it? That's the mark of quality right there, Scott. <laughs> Damn straight. Yeah. So, in fact, you, you, you as the GM are sitting there describing what their players are doing. Tell them what they've done. Yeah. yeah. That's rem- how, rem- how to enjoy it the most. <laughs> and, and reminding them that you can kill them at any time. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting. This kind of, you know, leads into kind of like portents and trying to pre-frigger things that are going to happen later in the game and kind of get your players kind of surprised and see like that, some bit of the future. Like that damn spell in Tatters of the King where they yeah. get to see portents of the future. Oh, oh my God! Mason, and, um, <laughs> Matt's doing it for the third time! Take the spell away from <laughs> okay, I, But I didn't know, of course, that it has the hook that says the GM pretty much has to protect the player to make sure that event then happens you later You would have done it even game. more there. Yeah, yeah, I would have done that. <laughs> I, I, yes, I, give me a moment. I'm going to cast plot armour. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've, done it, I've done it once. That I think I've done it once well, let's say. I was running Masks of Nathas. This is some years ago. I can't remember how they did it, but somehow they had they they the players, the investigators, engineers, some sort of portent, and and I, <laughs> and it was near the end of time. I just made it up off the top of my head, and I just went. You see a, a, a Welsh dresser, a, a sideboard in a kitchen, but it's in a cave. It's not in a kitchen, and on it is this big glass jar, and in it is something, and and you kind of. Focus down in on it, and you can see that it's a head. It's a head in this jar. It's your head, and I sort of pointed to one of the players. You know, their characters. It's your your investigator's head in a jar, and then it goes black. And then, <laughs> luckily, we then ended the session. It was a good cliffhanger. Um, and then I, because I, I knew at some point they had the you opportunity. moved house and never met them again. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> I knew at some point they had the, they were going to very soon be going to see uh, some paintings, which um, oh god, which allow oh. people to go insane. But there's, there's also I can't remember if this is in maths or not. But either, there's a mechanic that allows them to go back in time to some degree. Or I, I decided there was because I've done this scene. So I had this character, and then I didn't have to do anything. He as soon as he realised he could now go back in time. He, he went for it, and I said, uh, there's this situation happened. And it just, with the dice as well, it rolled that, that his character was killed by this serpent man, wizard, in prehistoric times, and put his head in the jar. And so it all worked out. Which I was amazed at myself, let alone the player, who thought I was wonderful. I, <laughs> but it was a lot of, um, yeah, I was very, very lucky. Yeah. I remember nearly being caught by that trap when we, when we played Masks. Oh. But really, this this kind of um, fulfilling portents like that about, you know, you see yourself getting killed on a bridge in uh, New York. Okay, well, I'm never going to New York. And as a player character, you know, you can avoid ever going to New York, really. Yeah. But this isn't really what Lynch does. It's more kind of vague portents that... Well, that once they're fulfilled, you then kind of think back and go, oh, that's what that was referring to. Well, the, the, the genius of it, I mean, what he does in this, which is something you can do in games, 
is that he doesn't refer to specific events. Uh, yes. As I mentioned earlier, what he's basically doing is using these characters to describe the themes of the film. So you could do the same in in uh, your scenario, where if you know that, you know, for example, it's going to involve time travel, you can start s- sort of dropping hints about you know time being out of joint or you're going to meet yourself yesterday or something like that, because you know that kind of stuff's going to happen, but you're not getting into the specifics. I mean, he does it very well. I mean, the, uh, one of the, the portent that seems to be dropped in the film quite a lot is that you have a debt that's unpaid. Yeah. And that's a great one because it has no specific meaning, but it, ha- but it means a great deal. Mm. And um, just even using that or something along those lines, having you know that kind of re- refrain repeated to the investigators in a number of ways. It could be while they're reading the newspaper, let alone talking to somebody, they see this line or they have something that refers to a debt or something. Um and because um, at the end of the day, every investigator is in debt to something. But the other thing that occurs to me is you could perhaps contrive these things because you, as Keeper, you do get to control their character when they are insane. When they have a, a bout of insanity mm. for those mm-hmm. few moments, you know, if you've predicted they're going to meet some old lady in a phone box and she's going to give them some uh, clue or something, then, you know, they, they flip out, they run off down the street... And, you know, next thing they know, they're in a phone box with this old lady and she's reaching in a bag and giving them, you know, the Necronomicon or something. <laughs> um, and obviously it's not, it, it, it's perhaps all a delusion, but perhaps something happens there. So you, you do get some control over their fate. Yeah. You could do that in a different way as well. If the character has a bout of amnesia, perhaps, you know, you've told them that, yes, this old woman is going to give them something in a phone box, that instead of that, they, they just, you know, wake up a little while later and whatever it is, you know, that they've, they, they're supposed to have got, they now have. And maybe, you know, later on they meet the old woman and it's sort of, you know, did, did you still get what I, do you still have what I gave you in the phone box? And it's, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, you remember when we happened. met? Yes. You remember when we met, don't you? <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> you, you. You do know who I am. Yes. And we're back to that. Yeah, we've met before, haven't we? <laughs> exactly. It reminds me, the, uh, one of the things I'd kind of noted down about thinking about using some of Lynch's devices in gaming and um, the whole kind of story within a story kind of narrative kind of hit a tone with me. That, And I thought of a way you could do it in a game where you have a... You, you kind of have to have all the investigators go insane kind of at the same point, really, ideally. But if you can do that, then you effectively can have a story within a story because then you could almost have a separate scenario that they that the insane characters have to play through during their insanity that when they get to the end of that scenario, it's almost they come out of that scenario and they're cured or they you know there's some semblance of sanity. That's, that's their, they've got to find their way that's, out. It's of kind of a mini game almost. almost isn't I mean, it's it? it's yeah. very much yeah. um, you know the kind of thing we see in a Star Trek episode where it kicks off and they're in a totally different world. Maybe they're in the Hollow Suites or maybe they're just you know trapped in their own heads by some alien device and they have to try and resolve it. And then at the end of the show, you know, hooray, they find their way out and you know, they roll mm. in a trance Absolutely, yeah. and, and because the scenarios run while the characters are insane, you can throw lots of weirdness and disjointed natures and, and I mean, you could almost, you could almost, if, if you were able to contrive it, it would be quite a contrivance to, you know, finish the, the session where they've all gone mad the next week, kind of say, well, um, Here's your yeah, we're going to leave that, yeah. we're going to play, we're going to play this other totally different game system. Uh, with a totally different scenario, but then, you know, it comes out at the end of that that actually they were just playing their insane characters. So I think insanity is probably the way to... uh, to, The (laughs) insanity mechanics are the way to make a a Lynchian game for me, I think. Mm. This isn't the way it was. 
And finally, to wrap things up, what the hell did we make of Inland Empire? Paul, um, what did you? What's your general kind of overview of the film? Then, what's what's it leave you with? The first time I watched it at the cinema with Scott about ten years ago now, we had to travel to Oxford to see it. Yes, I was totally blown away with it. I went to bed that night and it was just running through my head. And the next morning, I remember I got up and I wrote an essay about it and i sent it to you and joff scott and i looked for it this morning i i've I've no idea what i've 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 probably still do you think you still got it i'd love to read it again it's probably it's probably completely nuts i think i'd had about insanity myself (laughs) and i'd correlated the whole of the content i I remember this kind of made this whole narrative and i was kind of thinking i'm going to send this to scott and joff and they're going to be amazed with it they're going to go yes paul you sorted it all out and they were like both yeah oh yeah i don't know what you're about paul You must be used to that by now. <laughs> yeah, I am. But um, watching it again this time, I didn't get into it this time. I, I had trouble with my the bloody DVD. I put it in the player. I paid for a, you know, a two-disc version from America, get it over here. Well, years ago I bought it. I'll watch it, put it in my PS3, and I just hear this, bong, incorrect region. So by nefarious techniques, I managed to then watch it, but... It, you know, it was just watching it on a laptop, and um, and then and then it started to get really creepy, and I thought, screw this, I'm going to just get up early in the morning and watch this, or I'm not going to be able to sleep. So uh, <laughs> so it was kind of broken up, and I didn't really. And also, I was trying to write down time references for quotes and stuff like that. Mm. I think I really love the film, and in a year's time, I'd like to watch it again and just get absorbed in it because I think that's the way you've got to watch it. Uh, I think it's a wonderful film. If it's Lynch's last film then okay. I think it, it, it kind of plays with a lot of the things that we've seen in, in previous films uh, and ties together all those themes. And then, you know, then we get that wonderful end credit sequence, um, which you, when you sort of said maybe it's last, his last film and, and that's a kind, of a, um, a kind of joyous celebration of it all, I think maybe, yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it does feel like that. Yeah. What do you make of it, Mike? I, I, I love it. I, I, I don't think, you know, if I'm hard-pressed, I don't think it's necessarily my favourite of all of Lynch's films. My, I would put it as number one, but certainly in, probably in the top, you know, up there nearly, because there is so much to kind of find in repeat viewings that um, I think there. But, I mean, I mean, I have to say, the first time I watched it was at the cinema, and I'm sure I mentioned this to you at the time, Paul. I, I, I came out of the cinema... And, I, and the film's going through my head and I'm thinking about it and I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm driving home and I get in home and it was when I turned the light on in the living room, I kind of, <laughs> I can't really describe it, but I had the sense that I was still in the film. Mm, yes. <laughs> the film hadn't stopped playing and yeah. somehow, although I necessarily wasn't a character in the film, the film was still going on around me and it, and it wasn't for another sort of five minutes or so until kind of reality sunk in that I, I kind of realised the film is now finished. Are, are you sure about that, Mike? I'm are not you sure. sure it, it could still be going on. <laughs> still in a backstage lot, uh, sound lot somewhere. And I've, I've never experienced that with any other film. I mean, you said it, you said you it's know. not necessarily your favourite film, but I think it, that made me sort of think that even though this is three hours long, this is probably his most consistently disturbing film to yeah. me. Yes. Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, I, th- I think it's it's... It is, it's constantly on edge. Is, you can count on one hand the number of scenes in the film that are, I guess, comfortable. You kind of know where you are. 
even if you don't understand where you are, you kind of know where you are. Are there any? But I think, well, I think you know, the locomotion <laughs> scene. Um, you know, no, <laughs> no, no. And I'm, I'm just talking just for a few Maybe, seconds. Your yeah. mind kind of settles yeah. on. And, and then he screws that up too. And then he screws up. And it's this constant kind of barrage of like, who knows what. But it, it is... It's an exp- that's why I say it is an experience, not just a not just a kind of a, a visual. Um, it, it, it's that kind of total film. It's the sound in the film and and, and the story as well. Uh, it, it, in a sense, you know, is this his masterpiece? I, I don't know. I don't think it is, but I think it's very close to it. What do you make of it, Matt? Uh, now that I've finished it, I like it a lot more than the actual. A process of trying to watch it the first time round, partly because, like I say, I fell asleep three times trying to watch it. But there were points, particularly around like the two-hour mark, where I'm thinking, I want the last hour of my life back. That it just seemed a bit long. But when you see the whole thing and you finally got to the end, you have a degree of a, a more appreciation for it. You can see, uh, it's, as I think Mike described, it was a um, kind of a visual puzzle of a film to put together. That it works on so many more levels that you don't appreciate until you get to that very end but getting there can be a bit of a slog this is not an easy film to watch because I was thinking as I was watching it again I was thinking I was thinking you might feel that way but I was also thinking yes Matt's going to like this because there is this puzzle it's almost too obscure if it was a little more clear where the pieces were to put together I think you'd love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's but it's only something to say you realise that it is a puzzle really when you get to the end. Would you go and watch it again, you know, in a in a year's time? Oh, probably a year or two, yeah. Yeah. I have to say that, you know, I, I although I, you know, really loved it the first time I saw it, it wasn't until the second and possibly even the third viewing that I actually started to really like the film. Hmm. And I think it is a it's a grower. What do you make of it, Scott? Yeah, building on Mike's last point there. I think this is a film that that gets better with repeat viewings. Certainly, I mean, th- this is the third time I've seen it now. And this time round, yeah, again, I got a lot more out of it. Uh, I won't say that it made perfect sense to me, but it was definitely less oblique this time round. And I could see the, the elements of it coming together. I'm not sure it's, again, it's my favourite Lynch film. But... I'm not sure that I could choose a single film of his to be my favourite. Um, I'd certainly put it on a par with things like Mulholland Drive and Lost Highway, and I'd be hard-pressed to pick one of them. If this is his final film, then, yeah, it is a glorious end to his career. But on the other hand, if he's got another feature in him, dear God, do I want to see that. Oh, absolutely. Would you say it's a horror film, Mike? Yes. Matt? I'd say it has elements of horror in it. Scott? Oh, boy. I mean, I've talked before about, you know, the definition of horror being an intent on the part of the filmmaker to horrify and and cause dread. And so from that perspective, I say it is, because Lynch is trying very much to unnerve us. Does it have any of the conventional trappings of a horror film? No. So, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it fits our remit. There's probably only one word to really sum it all up, isn't there? Lynchian. No, I was thinking, sweet. (laughs) (laughs) The good friends of Jackson Elias now have a Patreon page. Think of it as an electronic donation box to help with the running costs of the show. The podcast will remain free and donations are entirely voluntary. 
follow the Patreon link on blasphemoustomes.com. Thanks for listening. As I've mentioned many times, we are very grateful to each and every person who backs us on Patreon. Uh, we have some expenses that are involved in running this show, and you know, thanks to all of you, you know, we cover those handsomely and get enough left over that we've managed to buy stuff like the new equipment we're recording on. And you know, we, we have something in mind for a future expense, which, which should be quite exciting. But we have a record number of backers to thank this time. And just to give this some context, we did announce a few days ago at the time of recording uh, that at the end of this month it would be the cut-off uh, for people who are backing us to get their copy of the Blasphemous Tome issue one. And as a result of this, we've had 17 new backers uh, since that announcement went out. So we Ooh. have a lot of you to thank. Please be patient. And um, first off is a long-term friend of the good friends, Stephanie McAleer. Thank you very much, Stephanie. Yes, thank you, Stephanie. Yeah, thank you, Stephanie. Thanks, Steph. And then thank you very much to Ben Mund. Yes, I received a secret Shoggoth present from Ben at Christmas. Ah. So uh, additional thanks to Ben. Thanks, Ben. Indeed, I also received the same uh, present, but as the part of the Kickstarter project. So thank you. Thank you very much, Ben. And a thank you to Justin Woodman. Yeah, thanks, Justin. Maybe see you in Providence again next year. Indeed. Thank you very much, Justin. Yes, thank you, Justin. And thank you, Jeff Wilkins. Indeed. Thank you very much, Jeff. Yes, thank you, Jeff. Thank you very much, Jeff. And another thank you goes out there to Derek Robertson. Many thanks, Derek. Yes, thank you very much, Derek. Cheers, Derek. Thanks, Mr. Robertson. Oh, and thank you to another uh, good friend of the good friends, Paul Lawrence. Can't go wrong with a name like that. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Paul. Many thanks indeed, Paul. And moving on to our $3 backers. It's a big thanks to our friend, Julian Haley. Thanks, Jules. Indeed, many thanks, Julian. Yeah, thank you very much, Jules. Cheers. 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 Oh, and thanks to Pookie. Indeed, thank you very much, Pookie. Yeah, thank you, Pookie. Cheers, Pookie. Down the hatch. God, we're going to be hammered by the end of this. <laughs> what do you mean by the end of this? <laughs> and also, another shout-out to Richard August. Many thanks, Richard. Yep, thank you, Richard. Cheers. Cheers, Richard. Cheers, Richard. We're going to need another bottle of Kahlua. I'd like to welcome back Steve Ellis. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Steve. Welcome back, Steve. Yeah, thank you very much, Steve. And cheers. 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 And thank you, Victor Wyatt. Indeed. Thank you very much, Victor. Yeah, thank you and cheers, Victor. Thank you, Victor. Oh, thank you very much to a namesake of mine, Matt Broughton. Thank you very much, Matt. Yep, thank you, Matt, and cheers. Cheers, Matt. Cheers, Matt. And thank you to Paul Morgan, and cheers to you. Thank you very much, Paul. Thanks, Mr. Morgan. Thank you, Paul. Thanks to Anna Hant. Thank you very much, Anna. Yep, thank you, Anna, and cheers. Thank you, Anna. And thank you and cheers to Dwayne Woolley, who's upped his pledge. So, thank you, Dwayne. Thank you, Dwayne. Thanks to Dwayne. Indeed, thank you very much, Dwayne. If you've never listened to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias before, well, welcome, and thank you for making it this far. And we had better warn you 
that we are about to sing. Oh, boy. We call it singing, but... It's more like a cacophony is really what it's like. Yeah. And the reason for this is because some maniac decided it would be a good idea to set a reward level that involved us literally singing our thanks to backers. It seems a long time ago now. It does, but we still hate you. When that seemed like a good idea. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we still think you're a maniac. (laughs) But we do have uh, Mr. Mike Mason here to help us with his vocal talents and musical... Uh... Extravagances? Yes. I'm not sure I should be joining. I did used to have an equity card, so I'm not sure if it's going to, like, banish yeah. me and backbore me or some way. But well, I, I think it will spontaneously catch fire if you do this. I think it may do. <laughs> but I'm worth, worth it to give it a go. And this one goes out to Jarrett Crader. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Jared Crater! This one's for Ray Inahosa. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Ray Inahosa! One other bit of news we've been nominated for a Golden Geek Award. Our nomination is in the category of Best Podcast under RPGs. If you go to the site, you'll find there are several podcast categories. So uh, just check that we're, you're looking at the right one. I think you have to be registered with Board Game Geek to be eligible to vote. But if you're so minded, then we would really appreciate your vote. It'd be great to win this prize for the show. You can find out more details in a blog entry on BlasphemousTomes.com. But don't delay. Voting closes on March the 18th. Well, that's been a longer episode than we anticipated, but maybe not quite three hours, but there is a lot to talk about with this film. There sure is, and uh, I think we'll probably carry on talking about this over lunch and for a long time yet. But until next time, it's a very creepy goodbye from me. An unnerving cheerio from me. A scary farewell from me. And a ultra goodbye from me. Hello? BlasphemousTomes.com We're just glad that we've upgraded Matt from the One Piece jockstrap. (laughs) <laughs> or gold lame jockstrap yeah that, that would have made more sense the, <laughs> the gold lame jockstrap the, the multi-piece <laughs> jockstrap <Yeah>. yes <laughs> uh, one for every appendage <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you understand how jockstraps work I don't think you know how Matt works Think about dead puppies. Think about dead puppies. (laughs) No, they're still funny.